We've been uh, working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, and <clears throat> we're on the uh, wonderful subject of divorce <laughs> and marriage. And so we've been hitting this for about two weeks now. This will be our third uh, session in it. And we're looking at the, the subject of Jesus' last word on divorce. And, you know, sometimes... Uh, People will say to me, why do you have to teach on this stuff? <laughs> uh, well, first of all, uh, you have to ask, what are you trying to accomplish when you teach in front of people who've come to hear, hopefully, the truth of God? I think, first of all, you, you want to obviously honor God. You want to bring glory to God. But also, I pray that you understand the purpose why we go through the Bible the way we do is so that we can understand its authority, that we can understand that it's infallible, that it's inerrant, that this is God's holy book. And our role as believers is to come under in submission to what the truth of the Word of God says because it speaks authoritatively. And as a result, we should our response to the teaching of the Word of God is we should desire to obey it. And if you can get that in your head as a believer, that whatever the Bible says is true because it comes from the hand of God, it comes from the heart of God. And if it's true, then as one of God's children, I need to put myself into submission under that truth. And it's an important concept to grasp, especially when we're dealing with the subject of divorce. Uh, God is speaking very... Uh, authoritatively here on this subject. He's not really mincing his words. He's not, there's not a lot of gray area here. But unfortunately today in our churches, the word of God, the authority of the word of God, there's some churches they don't even open up a Bible on Sunday morning. And so they've taken the word of God, the truth of God, and they've diminished it. They've diminished its authority. And so when they come to a subject of divorce, they're more interested in what a counselor has to say about the matter than the very word of God. And because of that, it's been undermined. The truth on this subject especially has been undermined greatly. And um, a lot of people today figure, well, you know, if you teach on something like this, this is just going to cause issues. Well, it may. But it's the truth. It's what God's word says. And so we always want to be under the authority of the word of God. Because when it speaks, we want to willingly and lovingly and hopefully eagerly and joyfully embrace it. Not figure out ways of how we can wiggle out of it. And so that's kind of my heart as we go through this this passage because we know that divorce has touched lives and families everywhere. It's an epidemic. And so here we see in Matthew chapter 19, once again, Jesus is dealing with marriage. He's dealing with the subject specifically of divorce. And so a lot of times people are quick to run under the word of God when it's talking about salvation or when it's talking about blessing or when it's talking about, you know, prayer or healing. But when it comes to the subject of divorce, people are kind of like, oh, I don't know if I want to go there. Well, we're going to go there and then today and the next couple of weeks, and we're going to discover what God's word has to say about this very uh, poignant subject. Um, Jesus said it this way, man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word, right, that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And if we live by every word that comes out of God's mouth, then it also includes the subject of marriage, the subject of divorce, even though some of these subjects are hard to address. Um, but the sooner we begin to obey God's word and come under its authority, the sooner we're going to experience in fullness the blessing of God in our lives and in our families. And so with that, we just want to read the text, and I'm just going to read verses 3 to 9 today for us because we're going to be spending a little bit of time in the Old Testament, but just to get you kind of reoriented to where we were. And so you can follow along in Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 3. 
and Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's life for wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And they, they said to him, Why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said, Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. From the very beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Now that's a pretty clear teaching on the word of God by Jesus Christ on the subject of divorce. Now remember, just a way, just a quick review if you weren't here, you've got to remember Jesus here is entering into a new phase of ministry. Remember, he was teaching in Galilee for um, a long time. And uh, it says there in verse 1 that he had, when he had finished these sayings, he departed Galilee. And you can just mark there in your Bible, end of Galilean ministry, beginning of Perean ministry. Because what Jesus is doing is he's traveling from Galilee on his way to Jerusalem for the passion to be crucified, to be resurrected. But on his way, he doesn't just beeline it. He, he goes a little bit east and a little bit south over into an area known as Perea, beyond the Jordan is what that means. And he travels through there and he ministers to the Jewish people who were all going to Jerusalem as well on the highways and byways because it was the Passover, time for the Passover. People were getting ready for it. They were traveling. So there was uh, thousands of people. And we see that here in Mark chapter 10 and here in verse 2 that Jesus had these followings of crowds behind him and he healed them. And in Mark 10 it says that he taught them. And so we have this new phase in Jesus' ministry. And we noticed in the last couple of weeks the attack from the Pharisees. It says in verse 3, And the Pharisees came to him and tested him. And they did it very strategically. They did it in this place because they knew if they could do it in this place, they had a possible chance to really discredit him in front of all these people. Because, see, back then there was two viewpoints on divorce. There was one that was very liberal, which most of the people held, the Pharisees held, that you could divorce your wife literally for anything. If she didn't put her hair up and you wanted her to, you could divorce her. If she burned the toast, you could divorce her. Didn't matter. If you just wanted to go after another woman, well, you just say you divorce her and you go. No big deal. And a lot of people subscribe to that kind of a standard on divorce. Well, there was another group of people that was very legalistic, you might say, and never, ever, ever divorce your wife. God didn't allow for it ever. And so they figured, you know what, we're going to get him in a place where he's surrounded by a bunch of people who we know holds our view, and we already know what view Jesus holds, right? Because back in Matthew 5, he already had this confrontation once, and so we're going to bring this out in the open, and we're going to seek to discredit him. Not only that, but we're going to do it in a place where the last guy that brought up the subject of divorce lost his head. So we not only want to discredit the Savior, but we want to destroy him, and that was John the Baptist. Remember, he talked about uh, Herod Antipas's uh, wrong marriage with his, his brother's wife, who was actually a, a near relative of him. So it was not only adultery, but it was incest, and it was just a sick situation. And John the Baptist brought it up, and basically he lost his head for it eventually. So they knew, the Pharisees knew exactly what they were doing. They wanted to trap him. They wanted to trick him. They weren't truth followers. They weren't looking for the truth. But... And so we, we've been looking at these different confrontations and they asked, is it lawful for a, a man to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answers them very directly and he answers them very uh, uh, clearly. And we looked at that last week, God's view of marriage. And we noticed that it said marriage involves absolute definition. He said it's between a man and a woman. God didn't create three women and one man or three men and one woman or four women and four men. He created one man and one woman. It was a defined relationship. Secondly, we notice that marriage involves absolute commitment. It says that he should leave and cleave. And we talked about that. Leaving and cleaving. Thirdly, marriage involves absolute unity. 
absolute unity. It says in verse 5, they shall become one flesh. And then the fourth thing we notice, God's view of marriage, is that it's absolutely reverent because it's something that God creates. God creates this union. And so we notice that if God created it, who are we to break it up? And Jesus' point in sharing those verses there with them was marriage is always the work of God, but divorce is always the work of man. And we talked a little bit about that last week. Well, then they asked a second question, and we looked at this last week. Why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce? And we looked at this briefly, God's view of divorce. Divorce is caused by sin. Divorce is always against God's plan. And divorce, there's no allowances for divorce. Okay, And we're going to look at that further in the coming weeks. That's not a popular view, but that's what Jesus was teaching. So I want to ask you a question here this morning. If, if God created man for woman, one man, one woman, strong bond, one flesh, marriage, by God's divine hand. It's instruction, don't break that up, don't divorce. Then why is it so difficult to maintain a standard within the ideal marriage? Why is it difficult? Why are marriages breaking up all over the place? Why are relationships torn apart? Why is it not easy to be married? It's not easy. Paul says that. You have more concerns when you're married. And divorce and remarriage was permitted, you might say, by the Lord, but it was never commended. It was certainly never commanded, as some of Jesus' own fellow contemporary theologians thought, the Pharisees. Jesus said that God permits it only on the basis of sexual immorality. Even then, it's a gracious concession to the sinfulness of man. Well, I want to take a little, might say, detour back into the Old Testament to figure out why marriage is so difficult. So turn with me in your Bibles back to Genesis chapter 1. All the way back, first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. He responds to their question, and he gives them quotations from this very text. And so I want to take a little break from Matthew and just look here in the Old Testament to see if God really affirms this view that divorce is wrong and marriage should be committed, one man, one woman, strong bond, one flesh, the work of God, no divorce. Now, we know, and we talked about this last week as well, in the, in the Ten Commandments, one command says you shall not commit adultery. And someone says, well, how do you define adultery? Adultery is sexual relationship outside of the marriage union by a married person different from fornication. When a married person has a relationship with someone other than their partner, that's adultery. And he says you shall not commit adultery. In other words, never violate the covenant of marriage. That's how sacred it is. But not only that, but he says in another commandment, he says don't even think about it, right? And Jesus affirmed that in the New Testament when he said, you know, even if you think to lust after another woman in your heart, you've committed adultery of the heart. And so that's the standard that God has. As a matter of fact, it's such an incredible standard that in Leviticus 20, verse 10, it says, if anyone commits adultery, he shall be put to what? Death. Wow. Can you imagine if that was enforced today? The only thing that can break up a marriage, the only thing, in God's eyes. This is God's from God's point of view. The only thing that can break up a union of two people that God has brought together into one flesh is simply adultery. 
And the reason is, is because one of those two people, whoever was guilty, would be killed. And after they're dead, then obviously you can't be married to someone if they're dead. The marriage is dissolved. And so he says there very clearly in the word of God that marriage is something that God views very highly. And he goes a little further and he says basically when the Pharisees came to him, he says, have you not, remember, he says, have you not read? He says, don't you know, this isn't something new, guys. This is all the way back from the very beginning. That's how sacred marriage is. It was God's original intent. And that's the way God designed it from the very beginning. That's his ideal, perfect plan. But it seems difficult to keep. And that's what I want to share with you now. Look at Genesis chapter 1, and we see here the creation. All right? We say that God, see that how God created everything, and it says all the way down in uh, verse 27, 26, it says, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish, the sea, the birds of the air, and over the livestock, and over the earth, and over every creepy thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. A male and a female. And then it says in verse 28, And God blessed them... And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over everything that moves on the earth. Stop right there for a second. When God made man and God made woman, he made them as a perfect complement for each other. Perfect And we know that he made man as the head. The Bible says that. Genesis tells us that man was created first. And the woman was made to be his helper. In Genesis 2.18, it says, And then God said that it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And out of the ground the Lord God had formed out of which he formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens. And he brought them to man to see if what he would call them and whatever he'd call the, every living creature, that was its name. Man gave all the, the name to all these things. He was the one doing it. But it says that Adam, there was no helper found fit for him out of the animal kingdom. Verse 21, so the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs, and he closed up the place with flesh, and, he, and the rib that the Lord God had taken out of man, he made into woman and brought her to man. And then the man said, this, is, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So you see that man was created and then God. That's affirmed and then, and then woman. You, you see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you see the same thing in verses 3 to 9. It, it affirms the headship of man within the marriage covenant. Paul writes, but I want you to understand that, every, that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Verse 8 says, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman was created for man. Now, if you've got a problem with that, you need to talk to God, not me. I'm just reporting to you what he said. Even in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 to 14, it says, Let a man learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. That's what it says. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. That's the way it was from the beginning, beloved. That's why he said, have you not read? But when you look at the account in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, 
I really don't see Adam prouncing around saying, hey, I'm the head, I'm the leader, I'm, I'm in charge here, Eve, you just submit. I don't see that. You can't see it there. Because God blessed them, it said, and he, he said to them, be fruitful. He said to them, notice, to them, Adam and Eve, be fruitful. And then he said, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and what? Have dominion. He didn't call Adam aside and say, okay, you're the head, pal, so you've got to do all this stuff. No, he was speaking to both of them. Why? Because they had a perfect union. They were co-rulers over the earth. I mean, but there was such an incredible harmony in that relationship, that original relationship. There was such a, a bliss of that union between man and woman that there was no conflict. None at all. I mean, can you even imagine that? Those of you who are married, having absolutely no conflict in your marriage at all, ever. Wow. I mean, that makes marriage look attractive. I mean, you have young people today, oh, I don't want to get married, why not? Oh, I don't want to get divorced. <laughs> That's their answer. So that you had this incredibly perfect harmony with these two people. Man being fully man in every dimension in terms of his strength, in terms of his protection, in terms of him providing for the woman. And you had the woman being the source of strength for her husband, a helper as God designed her to be in such a perfect and beautiful way. God created this harmony. And it could, say, it could be said that they ruled together. That's the, the majesty of the marital covenant. That's the majesty of a, of a marriage that's, that's created by God. Headship from the man, submission from the woman. That's what it says. But it's blended so perfectly together in oneness that it says there in 28 that they multiplied together, they filled the earth together, they subdued the earth together, and they even ruled together. No discord, none at all. Amazing. That's the creation. Well, look at chapter 3. We know what's coming, right? Look at chapter 3 because we see the fall. And we're not going to go through all this for time's sake, but just to summarize it, what happens? Sin comes in, right? Sin came, and when sin came, all was lost. And as you read the account there, you'll see that it was the woman really in her sinfulness took over the leadership in the situation. She took it over. When she was being tricked and deceived by the serpent, remember, oh, yeah, if you eat this fruit, we don't know what it was, fruit, a little bit of pomegranate for all we know. If you eat this fruit, you're going to know Good and evil. You're going to have the knowledge. You're going to, you're, going to, you're going to be like God. And what did she do? She ate. She ate. See, she, her mistake was she didn't go back to Adam, and she didn't say, you know what? Uh, I ran into this snake that talks, and, you know, this is kind of weird, but he offered me this. She didn't do that. She acted solely on her own. She didn't go back to Adam and say, hey, I could use some of your protection right now. I could use some of that strength that you have, Adam. I need your headship, Adam. I need you to make this decision. I need you to come under. I need to come back under the, the protection of you, Adam. She didn't do that. She acted independent of him. She heard the word that you can know good and evil and you can be like God. She was tempted. And her sin was that really she usurped the place of leadership in the covenant of marriage. And don't think, guys, for a minute, we're 
going to dump all over Eve here because Adam fell to the place of following Eve. Well, she did it. Paul says, he who was not deceived did it. He just followed right along. The fall was this. It was a reversal of God-ordained roles. God-ordained roles were just reversed. The woman took the lead and the man followed. And whenever you have a marriage where you have the woman leading and the man following, you're not going to see a lot of blessing in that marriage. It's just not going to be there. And you know what happened? Sin entered the world. It came because there was not only an actual act of disobedience toward God. He said, don't eat this stuff, and they did. But it was also the reversal of the God-ordained role for the man and the woman. And then we come to the curse. Look at verse 16. I want to spend just a little time here because this is kind of the the foundation of this whole thing that we're seeing Jesus tell them in Matthew. Now, in verse 16, because of what they did, God had to curse them. And we can't look at all the, the different curses here. There's a lot of it, actually. But you can go through the man's curses in verses 17, 18, and 19. And basically, he's cursed, and he says, you know what? Um, you're you're going to have a hard time uh, bringing home the bacon from now on, pal, because you were disobedient. You're going to have issues with the ground, with weeds, all that. There's going to be sweat and toil. See, before that, they didn't have that. Before that, Adam worked. They both worked. See, a lot of people think, oh, work is the, the, because of the fall, because of the curse. No, it's not. God always had designed us to work. The curse is now work is difficult. <laughs> you go out and you till your garden, what happens in a couple weeks? You got weeds growing, not plants. So you got to get down there and dig out the weeds. Before, that wasn't the case. But I want you to look at verse 16 because here is the curse upon marriage. You know there's a curse upon marriage? Here's the curse upon marriage, upon a marital relationship. First of all, childbearing. You see it there in verse 16. To the woman, he says, I'll surely multiply your pain in childbearing. All you ladies can thank God for that. Thank Eve for that. In pain, you shall bring forth children. That's a true statement. Have you ever seen a, a woman give birth to a child? I mean, even with modern medical technology and, you know, uh, shots they give them in their spine and all kinds of epidurals and all kinds of things. All right, still, it's not a fun thing. It's a painful thing. Man is cursed in his breadwinning. But look at the curse upon the marital relationship. It says at the end of verse 16, Your desire, Eve, shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Very, very important to understand what that statement means. When you look that up in commentaries and you ask different people, well, that, that, that simply means that that um, Eve will desire her husband, like in a physical way, like a sexual way. And he's the ruler. That's what that means. No, it doesn't. I mean, stop and think about it. We're talking about a curse here, right? What kind of curse would that be? <laughs> you know, the guys are going, oh, that's a, that wouldn't be a curse. Not at all. And the husband ruling over her in a normal function of leadership, the husband leads his wife. But if that's the normal thing, 
and that's the way it ought to be, and that's just routine stuff, then what does it have to do with being cursed? It doesn't sound like much of a curse, so that can't be what it means. And that's not what happens in marriages. That's just not what happens. Usually, within a marriage, the male husband has a greater desire sexually than the man or than the woman. That's just the way it is. But look at this first element that he, uh, it's kind of the last one. It says, when he shall rule over thee. I want to look at that part first in, in verse 16 there at the end. He shall rule over thee. That word from the Hebrew, mashal, it means the curse is a new kind of ruling. It means a new kind of ruling. It's not the wonderful harmony of that time they had before the curse when they were co-rulers together, subduing the earth. But this, this brings on a new whole dimension to this ruling. Man's authority becomes perverse. It becomes despotic. It becomes kind of the thing, you know, you, you ask, a lot of people ask, well, you know, is that male chauvinism? Yeah. Is there male, are there male chauvinists? Yes. There are. And there have been ever since the beginning. Ever since the fall, men have been and they've tried to keep women down. You understand? That's just the way it is. It doesn't matter what society, what culture you go to. That's the way it is, with very few exceptions. Throughout all of history, most societies have been male-dominated societies. And in many cases, it's, it's to the point of an abusive kind of domination. That's part of the curse. That's reality. Men pushing women around. I mean, even in the time of our Lord in Matthew, we see that. Women were looked down upon something as, as something, sometimes even less than an animal. That's just what their culture was. And it's difficult for women to get any kind of understanding because men tend to want to push them down in an unbalanced and even improper way. That's part of the curse. Marriage was cursed. But look at... The other element there that we see in verse 16. He will rule over you. But look at the first part. Your desire shall be for your husband. This, like I said, is not a sexual desire. Sorry, guys. In fact, the husband usually has a stronger sexual desire than the wife. The original word here comes out of an Arabic kind of a uh, term that means to seek control. That's what it means. It means to seek control. And so you have sin, you have the curse, and here you have the beginning, the original battle of the sexes right here in Genesis. And the reason there is conflict in marriage is because from then on, woman is still trying to get out from under the rule of man. And man is still trying to keep her down. <laughs> That's just the dynamic of the relationship. So you not only have the male chauvinist side, but you also have the other angle, the woman's right side. And both are wrong on the subject. And you have that running throughout all of history. Look over at chapter 4, verse 7. Another way to kind of understand this word that we're talking about here that means to seek control. Look at verse 7, chapter 4, when Cain and Abel come along. And it says there in verse 7, If you do well, will you not be accepted? Um, if you do not do well, it says there, sin is what? Crouching at the door. And then look at what it says. It's what? Desire, same word, is for you. What does that mean? Sin wants to control you. It's the same word that's used up there concerning Eve 
your desire shall be for your husband. In other words, you're going to want to control your husband, Eve. I mean, can we relate to that? Yeah. Men, women, we can relate to that. That's, that's like at the center of every marital relationship. You're just trying to control me. And it's right there. It's nothing new. The woman's desire to control the husband is there. But what God tells Adam is that you have to rule over her. So there's the conflict. That's why you have these issues. The woman's desire is to control you, but you must rule her. So the marriage of Adam and Eve was cursed in the moment of their sin. And when they reversed the God-ordained rules, that's where tension and conflict. That's the curse. That's, that's part of what we're signing up for. That's why we have divorce. That's why it, conflict it just seems inevitable in any relationship. But with all that being said, I want you to understand this. Just because there is conflict, I don't see within the confines of God's word him changing his mind when he deals with divorce. I don't see it. God doesn't change his view. Go all the way to the end of the, New, of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. Last book of the Old Testament. The second chapter, look at verse 14. Now remember, God is indicting the people of Israel, and he's indicting them because they were unfaithful to their wives, unfaithful in every way to their wives. And in verse 14, look at what he says. He says, but you say, why does he, uh, he not? And then it says this, because the Lord has, was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you've been faithless, though she is your companion and wife by what? Covenant. He's pointing out to them that, you know what? Even though these relationships weren't even necessarily kosher in God's eyes. He still says that he's a witness between their, in their relationship. And that's what he's saying in Matthew chapter 19. That when God brings a marriage together, when God brings people together, it's God, the Lord, is witnessing that marriage. It doesn't matter if they're Christian, non-Christian, whatever. There's no, no relevance. The Lord is there confirming the covenant of marriage. And then look at what he says in verse 16. He says, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. See, when they would go to battle and they would come back from battle, usually they would be bloody. Their garments would just be bloody. They'd be covered in blood. And that's what he's saying. He's saying this is the outcome of this kind of a breakup of what God said from the beginning. One man, one woman, strong bond, one flesh, the work of God, no divorce. When you break that apart, it's like you're going to war. And everybody's just bloody. And see, just because the curse came and just because marriage was cursed, I want you to understand that God doesn't change his view. He doesn't say, okay, now you're dealing with a cursed marriage, so I get, it's okay to go divorce. He doesn't say that. As a matter of fact, he, he says the one, he covers his garment in violence. Look at over at chapter 3 of Malachi, verse 6. And I want you to get this very clearly because this is 
just who our God is. He says, for I, the Lord, what's it say? Do not change. I don't change. My standard is this. If you're not going to live up to it, that doesn't change the standard. See, that's where the Pharisees went all wrong. They looked at God's law and they said, oh, God expects this. Well, you know what? We can't do that. That's impossible. And that's why the law was given to show them that they couldn't do it so that they would need a savior. But they didn't go that route. They looked at God's law and said, okay, he says, um, honor the Sabbath. Well, that's kind of impossible because we have lives. And, you know, so we'll make up rules that we can keep that in our mind we're honoring the Sabbath. So we'll say you can't carry a stick over 12 inches more than a mile. It's just crazy. And when they do that, well, then they feel, you know, righteous. That's why Jesus hammered them not on what they did outside, but their hearts. That's why when Jesus looked at the Pharisees, he says, you know what? A man who commits lust in his heart after another woman commits adultery. Because why? They were out there on the corners with all the robes on saying, oh, we've never committed the act of adultery physically. And they were feeling very prideful about themselves. But Jesus pointed out it's about the heart. You see, God doesn't change, beloved. I mean, what if, what if the conflict within a marriage just gets so great? What if you're just being so defrauded in that relationship? Are you saying you still, you still stick with it? Is that, is that what God expects? Turn back a couple pages to the book of Hosea. You all know the story of Hosea and Gomer probably. Right after Daniel. I mean, you just love this guy, Hosea. Um, he's one of the guys I'm definitely, I want to kind of get together with in heaven and talk to him a little bit because, I mean, you know, this is just, this, this book is just amazing. Um, but the Lord speaks to Hosea in verse 2, chapter 1, and he says, go take to yourself a wife. Well, that doesn't sound bad. Right? That's good. But look at what he says. He says, but basically, your wife's going to be, says, a wife of whoredom, a harlot. This is God telling him to do this. Verse 3, so he went, and uh, not only that, but it says they're, the, they're going to have a bunch of illegitimate children. She will. Verse 3, it says, so he went and he took Gomer, not Pyle. That's what I think of when I think of that name, Gomer Pyle. I used to watch that show when I was a kid. I mean, what a name. Who would name their daughter Gomer? But anyway, he took her, and they had a baby, Jezreel. Because God was going to bring vengeance on Israel for Israel's harlotries. This is a picture for everybody. Hoses was to marry a woman who turned out to be a prostitute, produced illegitimate children, and he, he, they were going to be a living illustration of God and Israel. That was the plan here. God married Israel, and Israel turned out to be a harlot, had all kinds of illegitimate affairs. You can read about that all over the Old Testament, had relationships, produced all kinds of illegitimate results. So you have Hosea and Gomer becoming kind of a, a living parable of God and Israel. Well, they were married. And Jezreel was their first. And then came their second child, a daughter. Verse 6 says there, She conceived again and bore a daughter. And God said unto him, Call her name Lo-Ruhama, which means no mercy. I mean, you ever see that book, that name in a baby book, ladies, for the names, you know? I don't think so. Who would name their kid that? And then in verse 8, when she had weaned Lo-Ru-Hama, she conceived and bore a son. And God said, call his name Lo-Ami, which means you're not mine. <laughs> no mercy and you're not mine. How's that for two kids' names? I'll show no mercy to that kid and that one doesn't even belong to me. It's illegitimate, both of them. This woman brought these two illegitimate kids Look at how he reacts. Well, he loves her. 
He loves her. More than that, if you read the story, he's devoted to her because of the covenant of marriage. He's an honorable man. He wants to make the most out of his union, even though he's married to a prostitute. I mean, that, that just flies in the face of what we hear today. He's married to an adulteress. And she keeps on having these illegitimate children with really weird names. Well, what's his reaction? He's going to be like any, anybody else. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. He says, basically, you know what? Contend with your mother. <laughs> Turns the family on her. Turns to the family and says, you know, deal with her. Gangs the whole family up on her. Says, she's not my wife and I'm not her husband. What's he saying? I'm, I'm not taking this any longer. This is ridiculous. This isn't my wife and I'm not her. I'm getting out of this deal. He says, let her therefore put away her harlotry out of her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and set her as in a day that she was born and make her like a wilderness and set her on a dry land and slay her with thirst. What's he saying? He's ticked off. And you know what? He's just going to let her have it. That's what he's saying. He's filled with anger, which is a normal reaction in this situation. I'm not going to have mercy on her children for their children of harlotry. mother has played the harlot she conceived them done shamefully she said i will go after my lovers and give me my they give me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax and my oil and my drink you know what she was in this relationship for one reason folks it was money she was a streetwalker. she wanted money she was a paid harlot And she literally devastated this man, Hosea, who was a prophet of God. She turned these two illegitimate children into a home that was probably most likely very chaotic. I mean, think, just dealing, kids dealing with their name, what they're called. I mean, crazy. I mean, can you imagine if Hosea went to a Christian counselor today and said, what should I do? Here's the situation. They say, get out of that. Leave her. Divorce her. Forget it. But look at verse 6. It says, Therefore, behold, I will hedge up thy way with thorns and make a wall that she cannot find her paths. In other words, I'm going to prevent her from going and doing all these things. I'm just going to not walk away. I'm, I'm, I'm going to do what I can to prevent her. I'm not going to put up with this anymore. He gets over his anger and he wants her to keep from destroying her own life. I'm just not going to let her do it. I'm going to put a hedge around her. Then in verse 7, it says, Then she, will fo- she shall follow after her lovers, but she won't overtake them. She'll seek them, but she won't find them. In other words, I'm going to make it really hard for her to connect with anybody. your husband in that situation there's nothing wrong with that do everything you can and she says that's what he did he basically tried to close it all out then he says at the end of verse over in chapter 7 Or actually, excuse me, verse 7, not chapter 7. She'll say, I'll go and return to my husband. For it was better then than it is now. In other words, she got to the point where he put up so many hedges and he prevented her from making any money. She couldn't go to her, um, her lovers and all that stuff. She basically said, I just got to go back home and deal with him because I can't continue. He's preventing me from doing this. 
you read the story, you'll, you'll see all this in there. And you might say, you know, if you're a husband, would you take her back? <laughs> would you take her back on those terms? I don't know. Well, he did. He wanted her on any terms. Very forgiving guy. She goes back. She didn't know, turns out, that he was giving her grain and wine and oil all along. He was multiplied her silver and gold. He was taking care of her all along. He made sure that she had food to eat, made sure that she had money to live on. She thought it was coming from her lovers, but really it was coming from him, from the guy who loves her. I mean, it's an incredible story. And he goes through this kind of cycle. But he ends up really wanting to allure her, to bring her into the wilderness, speak tenderly to her, it says. What's he doing? He's trying to win her back. He's trying to court her. Even though she did all this horrible stuff to him. When to take her flowers and whisper little nothings in her ear, you know, sweet little nothings. She ends up on the slave block, as the story goes. She ends up a prostitute for sale, stark naked, and they're auctioning her off in the town square. In chapter 3, verse 2, it says, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer of barley. He was the highest bidder. <laughs> and I said to her, Thou shalt abide with me many days. He's not saying, Look, I invested a lot of money in you, so, you know. That's not what he's saying. What's he saying? He's showing her unconditional love. He said, I don't know what, I don't care what you do. I don't care what you do. I'm an honorable man. We're married. I'm going to honor this covenant. And you know what? I'm even willing to buy you back. He says, and you will not play the harlot, and you will not be for another man. So I also be for you. What's he saying? He's saying, you know what? Gomer, you, yeah, you messed up bad. But you know what? I'm still here for you. I still want to love you. You can't kill my commitment. You can't kill the covenant. And what's interesting, it comes almost full circle. Remember when we were going through Matthew 18? And we were talking about discipline and we were talking about forgiveness? And Jesus said 70 times 7. In other words, forgiveness has no limit. See, so many times today, couples who are having a hard time, usually one of the, the party is just looking to get out. They're just looking to divorce. That's all they want. They don't want to work on it. They don't want to, they don't want to go to count. They don't want to do anything. They just want to dissolve it. And the sad thing is, is most counselors and even most pastors would look at a situation like this and say, yeah, definitely leave. What are you thinking? That would be our answer, logically. But that's not God's answer. That's not God's answer at all. He, he, he bought her back and he took her even as a virgin, made an unconditional covenant with her. And that's the picture of God's love and forgiveness within the, the marriage relationship. That should reinforce in your mind that God's standard hasn't changed. One woman, one man, strong bond, unity for life put together by God. The only thing up to this point 
that could break a marriage was one sin. That was adultery. And that was brought on because of simply one of them was executed, one of them died. Go all the way over to the book of Ephesians and we'll close with this. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Even in the New Testament, the same standard is there. It's still reiterating the same basic instructions that he gave to Adam and Eve. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Doesn't say because he's a great guy or he's a wonderful man of God or whatever. No, it says this is what you need to do. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. The church submits to Christ and so wives should submit and everything to their husbands. And then look at what he says in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. See, the, the call on, on the wife is to submit, and the call on the husband is to lead, but do so lovingly. We're not to keep our wives down. We don't put them under our thumb. We should big, be their biggest cheerleaders. We should desire them to use their gifts and to, to, to see God work in their lives. We shouldn't be threatened by that. So God hasn't changed his view at all. God hasn't changed. And we need to understand that. And, you know, there's two basic things in any relationship, especially a marriage relationship, if you want it to be blessed by God, if you want to have joy and peace and happiness in your relationship, the first thing basically is self-denial. Be willing to deny yourself. That doesn't come easy. Ask my wife to me. <laughs> I should rephrase that. That doesn't come easy to me. Ask my wife. <laughs> but I'm sure she has issues with self-denial too. We all do. And the second thing is unselfishness. And you say, well, aren't they the same thing? No, they're really not. Self-denying is, is really uh, not demanding your own rights. You may have the right for something, but you don't demand it. You deny yourself. But unselfishness is a willingness to really give over and above what is required. So in the end, you know what? God hasn't changed his standard at all. And it, it may be hard to hear that God has a standard for marriage that holds it together. Man, woman, one bond, strong unity for, for, forever, brought together by God. That's what he desires. And so we're going to look next week a little bit about, well, when divorce happens, what do you, what do, you do with it? How do you deal with it? Because I started off this series saying, first of all, I want you to understand two things. God hates divorce. But secondly, divorced people aren't relegated to a second-class status in the kingdom of God. They have available to them the same forgiveness and love and grace that everybody else does. So we need to remember that. Let's close in a word of prayer, and then we'll sing a song and have our communion time. Father, we pray this morning that you would just minister to our hearts. Lord, I know that um, sometimes when you talk about these kind of subjects, it's hard because everybody more or less has been touched by this subject, and yet we don't ever want to uh, water down or delineate from what the Word of God says and the standard that he holds. And yet, I recognize that people go through divorces and and it happens every day. But uh, that's when we need to turn to you and we need to ask you to uh, just cause healing to take place and uh, restoration. And Father, we also thank you that when we do sin, that you don't hold that sin over our head, that you, if we're in Christ, you have forgiven us of those sins. And Lord, that you have 
the Bible says that there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. Lord, we thank you for those words. And Father, if we're married here today, we should seek to stay married with every fiber of our being because it would be honorable to do. We may not even like our spouse. It's irrelevant. We need to really commit ourselves to upholding your standard. And if we've been divorced, we need to go to God and make sure that we have sought his forgiveness. And then thirdly, just don't allow this to become an area of judgmentalism, legalism. It's not our call. God knows the hearts of people. God knows the experiences from which they come. And he's perfectly capable to deal with each individual at their level. So, Father, we thank you this morning. We pray that you prepare our hearts for communion. If there's anyone here who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, I ask that they would cry out to you, that you would hear their cry, that you would show them their need of a Savior. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.